It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Rachel Campos Duffy. I'm Jason Chaffetz. I'm Maria Bartiromo, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, October 11th, 2023. I'm Dave Anthony. Israel is at war with Hamas terrorists. President Biden says the U.S. fully supports our ally. But Republican Senator Rand Paul tells us he wants U.S. troops to stay out of it. Israel's received a great deal of help from us over many decades, and I think they're very capable. There's probably no more capable military other than ours in the world, to tell you the truth. And I think that uh, Hamas is going to rue the day they did this. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Within days of the terror attack in Israel, Fox News obtains new data from U.S. Border Patrol sources, revealing increasing apprehensions of people from the Middle East. And we know that they've had more hits on the terrorist data watch list uh, during the last two years than we've ever seen at the southwest border. So within that sea of humanity of 10,000 people, you know that there are discrete threats to public safety. And I'm David Marcus. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. For a fifth day in a row, Israel is at war with Hamas terrorists. A group whose stated purpose for being is to kill Jews. And they started it Saturday with a terror attack crossing the border from Gaza. This is an act of sheer evil. More than 1,000 civilians slaughtered, not just killed, slaughtered in Israel. So President Biden says... We must be crystal clear. We stand with Israel. That means the U.S. providing military assistance, including help with Iron Dome air defenses. We're going to make sure that Israel does not run out of these critical assets to defend its cities and its citizens. It's not just Israelis. More than a dozen Americans have also been killed. Even more than that, are missing feared to be among those Hamas is holding hostage in Gaza. You know, it's impossible to watch without being horrified, you know, by the killing of civilian women and children, unarmed people. Senator Rand Paul is a Republican from Kentucky. I don't understand it because terrorism, you know, is supposed to strike fear, but they ultimately have a goal. But I think really, actually, in the last 20 years, as we've seen terrorism happening, probably starting with 9-11, and terrorists have seen our response to it, or the West's response to it, or Israel's response to it, I don't know how they imagine that they're doing their cause any good, because it really does unify. I think 9-11 unified the world against, you know, Osama bin Laden and the the jihadists. And I think this will unify the world as well. Now, it is interesting still to see some of the response from some of the Middle Eastern countries who aren't quite as unified, saying it's Israel's fault. Well, of course. And And there are people here that have been pro-Palestinian rallies here in the U.S. Yeah, it seems like they all go to Harvard. (laughs) So, uh, but it's hard to even imagine that. And, And their arguments become less potent, you know. You know, when you see the the death and carnage that has no real justification. Well, they're going to point to, especially if Israel does a ground invasion and there are civilian casualties as a result of all of what Israel's doing in retaliation. This has happened many times before where yeah. they 
demand Israel stop because civilians are being killed, and right. and then they'll accuse them of targeting Palestinians. And it's virtually an impossible situation from a military or a logistical point of view, going into a big city like this and trying to find these people because they'll disappear into the tunnels, they'll disappear into civilian populations, and no, it is. It's going to be a bloody mess, but it's a bloody mess started by people who wanted to kill women and children, and you know I think they have no leg to stand on, the terrorists. Hostages... There are some Americans believed being held. Hamas has threatened to execute them. They've even threatened to make it public. This is a very difficult situation, but if there are Americans, would you support the U.S. military going in to try to rescue them? I think it's best not to make a comment yet on what's happening. We need to know who's being held. And the other thing about telling people what you're going to do is it may not actually help the cause, but it's going to be complicated. You've got 100,000 Israeli troops massing out there, and I think they're going to destroy the infrastructure of Hamas. And yeah. I think Hamas is going to get what they what they deserve. Now, as far as supporting Israel, we're not going to be putting our own troops there, but uh, we're going to be sending more help, more munitions. Do you support that? Well, we've had a long-standing, you know, special relationship with Israel, including armaments and sharing uh, technology for decades now, and that mm-hmm. will continue, and I do support that. Okay. I'm, we've had a big debate in our country about the support for Ukraine, and that war is still going on with Russia, and the debate about whether or not to send more ammunition. Does that get more complicated with Israel? Well, I think there's going to be some question of whether or not Hamas is using any weapons that we actually sent to Ukraine to begin with. So okay. there's a question of oversight of whether or not the corruption... You think that's happened? Do you think our cor- weapons have gotten to the Gaza? There, there are people saying that. I, okay. you know, we're going to wait and see what the evidence shows on that. But I've been one who's been a stickler for more oversight of the weapons and the dollars going into Ukraine to make sure they're not. There have been public reports of arms dealers... Uh, making off with our weapons, that some of the weapons that are are being are given to Ukraine. My point has always been that any kind of aid, even to our allies, we need to be very careful that we're not bankrupting ourselves in the process. We really have a terrible financial situation in our country where we spend about $1.5 trillion more than comes in. One of the things I suggested a year or two ago is when Afghan war was over and we left and Biden left in such a terrible fashion, there was still like $3 billion sitting in an Afghan reconstruction fund. I tried to take that in order that that could actually be used for Iron Dome payments, and the Democrats objected to it. They said, oh, no, no. And I said, well, isn't some of this going to go to the Taliban? Or because good? you face criticism for blocking funding for the Iron Dome, which ultimately right. Iron Dome funding did occur, correct? Right. Basically, I never blocked it. I offered to, to pay for it. So I think it sometimes it depends on the perspective of who's reporting, right. whether or not that's reported as blocking, or you could easily write the same headline, Democrats block Rand Paul from funding Iron Dome because they won't pay for it from Taliban money. You right. No, I, mean? I understand. Are we so, still... Are we still funding for humanitarian purposes anything in Afghanistan? Or you're, that you're yeah, not? we, we uh, estimate there's still several hundred million dollars in a fund going to Afghanistan, and there are reports of that going into the hands of the Taliban. I think, I think that's atrocious. You know, every year we send uh, still several hundred million dollars to the Palestinians, to the Palestinian Liberation Organization. We send it uh, to a group that actually was funding uh, martyrs, people who die mm-hmm. killing Israelis. We're giving martyr funds from this fund that was being funded by the U.S. So I've actually recommended we go one step further. I don't think we should be giving any tax dollars. There's a big question about Iran here. There were reports that Iran helped Hamas militants plot this terror attack. Iran's Ayatollah says that's not true. Where do you stand on that? And what 
should we do if it is proven that Iran was behind this? I think we should thoroughly investigate it and see if it's true or not true. We do know that they, and they've admitted to giving funds, they're jumping up and down, gleefully clapping their hands at what happened. So we know where their sympathies are or where their sick sympathies are. As far as the proof of whether or not they were a part of this, we should we should investigate it. There are people in the Senate now, we won't name any names, Lindsey Graham, talking about <laughs> bombing Tehran immediately. And the thing is, is the way our system works, our founding fathers so much disliked and wanted to prevent forever war, the ones that went on in Europe, that they put the war-making power in the legislature and you have to have a vote. Mm -hmm. So people who are saying, let's bomb Tehran, they should be saying, let's go to Congress and ask permission to bomb Tehran. But then there would be a debate over this. We'd see the evidence. So people say, well, we don't want Iran to have a nuclear weapon. Neither do I. Nobody does. But are they closer now than they were a year ago? Yeah, they're within two weeks of having enough uranium. People say, we're going to bomb their nuclear program out of it. Well, you know, it takes about this much uranium. A cup full of uranium that's enriched to 90 percent is enough for a bomb. So do you think you could hide 10 cupfuls in 10 different places under 10 different mountains in Iran? I don't think most of the time the briefings I've gotten says you cannot militarily stop them. So then it gets to... What do we do? Yeah. I mean, is there is there something? But at this point, I think the primary things are trying to free the hostages if we can, and then making sure that Hamas has no ability to do this again. You talk about Congress. Is there, there is there nuance in that though? Uh, the declaration of war versus an administration authorizing a series of airstrikes targeting, say, facilities that they say might be used for nuclear weapons. Wouldn't that be different? Some say there is a difference. I'm sort of one who believes that if we're going to go to war with a country, even just dropping some bombs, we should have a vote in Congress. But wouldn't that take some element of surprise? Don't you need some element of surprise on airstrikes and certain things? You can probably imagine some some situations when it wouldn't. But it's also another reason for not going too far into what we're going to do to Iran. If, for example, we're going to be part of a bombing campaign of Gaza, whether it's justified or not, that should be a vote. We shouldn't uh, be, you know, they know it's coming. It's in all likelihood coming from Israel. But if the U.S. were to be part of that, there needs to be a full-throated debate in our country and we have to make a decision. And what would get you to vote yes for that? What circumstance can you see that where you, okay, the U.S. has to help Israel? I don't think we should wish to be involved always in every war. And you can often be supportive without being directly involved with your troops. And I think at this point, Israel's received a great deal of help from us over many decades, and I think they're very capable. There's probably no more capable military other than ours in the world, to tell you the truth. And I think that uh, Hamas is going to rue the day they did this. Senator Rand Paul has a new book out this week titled Deception, The Great COVID Cover-Up with a picture on the front of a masked Dr. Anthony Fauci. The Trump then Biden COVID advisor Senator Paul has sparred with at hearings. Dr. Fauci, knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan? Senator Paul, I have never lied before the Congress, and I do not retract that statement. The battleground for Paul and Fauci, whether COVID leaked out of a Chinese lab. Let me finish. You take an animal virus and you increase its transmissibility to humans. You're saying that's not gain of function? Yeah, that is correct. And and Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly. And I want to say that officially. So is the senator's book personal? No, but I would say that um, there's an enormous amount of culpability that can be attributed to Anthony Fauci for the pandemic. We have conversations of his, private conversations, February 1st, uh, January 31st of 2020. 
and he's already acknowledging that he knows that they're doing gain-of-function research, juicing up viruses in this lab. He's already acknowledging that the virus looks like it's been manipulated in a lab, and he's saying basically in a private email, we're very suspicious of this. Three days later, he's editing a paper calling anybody who says this a conspiracy theorist and saying that there is no evidence that this is not a virus that could have come from a lab, saying this adamantly while privately saying the opposite. And this wasn't the first time on masks. You know, he's telling his colleagues, don't wear them, they don't work, and then publicly telling people to wear three masks that are made of cut-up T-shirts kind Mm. of stuff. So he has this history, but it's not personal in the sense I have no animus. In fact, it's really about trying to prevent this from happening again. Is there any chance, some people still have said, even Dr. Fauci, there is a chance that this was naturally done. Some animal, there's some link somewhere we haven't found yet. Almost everybody that believes it came from the lab also leaves some allowance for the possibility that it could have come from animals. Interestingly, nobody like myself who believes that it came from the lab are calling the other people crazy calling Mm -hmm. them conspiracy theorists. So all the epithets and all the ad hominem is all coming from Anthony Fauci and his crowd. In fact, we have emails of Anthony Fauci saying to two scientists, take them down. So you want him charged? You want something to happen to him? Well, we already know that he committed a felony. He told me point blank, he's unequivocally never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan. Well, we have in his own words now from a private email saying he did. So he lied to Congress. Is well, your... It's a felony. It's a, it's a punishable up to five years in prison. If you were a Republican or a supporter of Donald Trump, he'd be in prison now. You also write in the book many other things about COVID from the shutdowns, the lockdowns. One of the things that you wrote I thought was interesting. Americans were fed a diet of nonstop fear-mongering, Netflix, escapism, and loneliness. And the virus did not do any of that. No. I mean, it turned out to be devastating. The book just out this week, Deception, the Great COVID Cover-Up from Senator Rand Paul, Republican from Kentucky. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. This is David Marcus with your Fox News commentary coming up. As numbers of migrants coming to the U.S. skyrocket again after a brief drop-off in June, new numbers about who all is coming reveal an increase in those coming from the Middle East. People from Afghanistan, thousands of them, more than 600 Iranians, more than 160 people from Lebanon, the home of Hezbollah, more than 500 people from Syria, the home of ISIS, over 130 people from Yemen. It's not on the list. There are also more than 26,000 people from China. Fox's Bill Malusian at the border brought us the numbers along with Fox's Griff Jenkins. More than 6,300 Afghans, more than 3,000 Egyptians, nearly 31,000 from Turkey, more than 13,000 from Uzbekistan have come over the last two years. More than 2 million migrant encounters were recorded this fiscal year at the southwest border, but it's those who have not been encountered that caused some of the biggest worry. Since President Biden took office, CBP sources tell us at least 1.5 million known gotaways have come across our southern border. These are people that agents see on cameras or maybe sensors, but they just don't have the manpower to get to. And this past fiscal year, even more names matched those on the terrorist screening database. 151 people caught between ports of entry along the southwest border. Yeah, well, we're, we're seeing the largest surge on the southwest border that's ever occurred in the history of the border. Ron Vitello is a former Border Patrol chief and a former director of ICE. 
think about that. You know, I talked to some folks at CBP a couple of weeks ago, and they were seeing 10,000 apprehensions every 24 hours. And that's important in the sense that it gives you an idea of what the workload is like. But you have to also know that within that flow, like the numbers are are indicating, there's people from all over the world and from all sorts of points of view. And, and we know that they've had more hits on the terrorist data watch list uh, during the last two years than we've ever seen at the Southwest border. So within that sea of humanity of 10,000 people, you know that there are discrete threats to public safety, potentially people who are affiliated with terrorism and come from places that don't really like the United States much. And so we, we, need, we all need to be concerned because there's a huge threat that's playing out each and every day down there. And it's very frustrating for somebody who did what I did for so many years to have this kind of traffic on the border and really no indication from the administration that they're going to change anything. And I want to get to that in a minute, but they're called special interest aliens, right? These folks coming from places like Egypt, like Syria, like Iran. What does it mean to be called a special interest alien? Well, the the, the TSDB hits, which is the, uh, the largest on record in special interest aliens, that's kind of a term of art from a little bit of the past, but TSDB hits, terrorist screening database, these are people who our own government has said that they are somehow affiliated with, either by themselves or with other people that have committed terrorism or suspected to have committed terrorism. They find themselves into this pipeline encountered by CBP, and when CBP screens them against the database, they get a hit which says, this is a potential terrorist. And so, again, more of those than any other time in the history of the border. You combine that, right, the special interest aliens and the high numbers, you combine that with the number of known gotaways that Border Patrol is telling our own Bill Malusian is the number, 1.5 million since President Biden took office. So you combine 1.5 million known gotaways with this increasingly high number of special interest aliens. You, you have to imagine people within the administration are being made aware of these numbers as they creep up. And what was the response to being notified of these increasing numbers? Yeah, there hasn't been much of one. It's a very good question. Like, why are we allowing tens of thousands of people to come to the border every week, releasing two thirds of them, and then knowing that there are places along our border where the border patrol is so covered up with the care and comfort and processing mission that they can't patrol the border. And this has been happening now for going on three years, and they really haven't done anything about it. I mean, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse, and there is no remedy inside. You know, I was in the Border Patrol for a really long time, a handful of times in my career where I said, this is the worst thing we've ever seen on the border, the worst surge of activity and encounters and apprehensions. But all of those other times up until now that I've been witness to that, we were all trying to fix it. You know, at the highest levels of the administration, people were, were asking, you know, what are the solutions here? What can we do, Chief, to make this better? And we did those things. They, they, we made those recommendations and we started to do those things. This administration knows full well what they can do and they just refuse to do it. You talk to some people like people like yourself who, who live and breathe this space and there's a lot of speculation, right? You hear you hear from Alejandro Mayorkas, the head of Homeland Security, when he says the border is secure. And, you know, you hear from Democrats in Congress and Republicans in Congress, the fight over giving so-called amnesty or citizenship. And so when you hear these debates and you think, 
oh, this is this is a part of being humane or this is a part of being um, reversing Trump's policies is to let more people in. Is all of that sort of negated by this narrative when you see people who are are not like Venezuelans or Cubans or Haitians? They're not from Northern Triangle countries. They're from all over the world. And they're from countries who our own government, as you said, um, is concerned about. Like, well, I, I, that juxtaposition is confusing to me. Yeah, it, it, there's. I, I don't understand the justification that allows this number of people to come across the border every day and no changes in policy whatsoever to make it stop. Uh, it puts us all at risk. And so, you know, that you talk. You know, let's set the politics aside for a minute. You know, this president yeah. will say, and, and and the spokesperson from the White House will say that the, the the president has offered an immigration reform bill, and that Congress refuses to take it up. Well, I will tell you that this is the country that's very generous with legal immigration. We take in over a million people a year that immigrate fully to this country. Um, And I believe as a society, as a culture, we would do a lot more than that or could do a lot more if we chose to, but not while there's a gaping hole at our southwest border. And so I don't know what the justification is. There's nothing but cynicism that comes to mind when we're we're allowing tens of thousands of people a week into the country. It's the worst kind of politics. And and the, and like I said, that the spokesperson will say, oh, you know, they offered this reform. Well, nobody that's in the pipeline right now would benefit from the reform that was suggested. So if you look at the words that allow, you know, sort of an amnesty for the current populations in the United States, none of the people in the pipeline today that are risking their lives, that are being abused by smugglers, that are being forced into human trafficking, none of them, absolutely zero of them would qualify under Joe Biden's proposal that started at the beginning of this administration. So they're not being factual. They're certainly not being truthful with, you know, their desire to fix things, because if they know how to fix it, Alejandro Mayorkas was the deputy uh, secretary during the 2014 surge. Again, a time in my career was the worst that we had ever seen. And people like him and the administration asked us how to fix it. And we put steps into place to minimize that problem and reduce the flow. And they worked for a while. He, he knows that this is a market that responds to incentives. If people are held to a consequence for entering illegally, fewer of them will come. And that's and he knows that like he knows any other part of his job. But because of the the administration being beholden to the left, they can't seem to way to fix it. Yeah, I, I guess there are people I guess he knows himself that there are people even above his pay grade on this. Um, I, I just want to ask you in, in light of what's going on in, in Israel, how does security posture change at the border after attacks like what we just saw in Israel, does that impact logistics at the border? Or is it such, do you imagine it's such an unprecedented situation with the sheer volume of people coming to our border that there, there really isn't that much to change, even in light of a horrific terrorist attack, you know, thousands of miles away? Yeah, it is unfortunate because they are faced with this unprecedented workload. And now we're adding to that workload, you know, essentially being on a war footing, you know, with groups like Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood, Islamic Jihad. So those threats have existed on our border. They have existed in the pipeline for many, many years. But the Border Patrol is now in a situation where they really can't do more than they're doing. Um, And so they're added, you know, their stress level uh, is added to in a dramatic way, because now, you know, we have we have discrete threats that we know are, you know, upset, you know, kind of riled up. People want to, you know, we're going to help Israel. And so people want to, you know, make us stop that. Right. And how how would they do that? They would do that by by hurting us or sending people to come hurt us. And the Border Patrol, you know, they're, they're very resilient, super patriotic, you know, servants of the people. Um, they're going to do the best they can. That's what they always do. 
but the burdens are very, very high, even with a, you know, a, a threat picture that's expanding every day. But do people on the ground in high up positions say, OK, we had a, a pretty serious situation uh, occur in, in Israel and we've got people from the Middle East coming over here in droves. We should probably address that. Or, or is that if, if there if there is something to address, that would have to be a directive that comes from an administration official, not from the Border Patrol itself? Well, it's quite likely like the intelligence apparatus, both you know nationally and inside of CDP and the Border Patrol, are putting out directives to do additional screening, perhaps separate interviews, maybe mandatory detention. But you're right, they're going to need policy backup from the chain of command. And the burden is so high now that you know 10,000 people a night. That's just that's just off the charts workload. That you know it, it's going to be really hard, even even with additional scrutiny from people from certain parts of the world. Uh, it's still going to be very hard for them to do. Uh, I guess last one for you. You know, we talk about the border here on this podcast a lot from multiple angles. Um, we've got a, a tremendous resources on the ground there with Bill Malusion and Griff Jenkins and, and their reporting resources and how they, you know, the kind of job they do. Are we are we talking in circles at this point? I, it, Mayorkas and, and people in this administration, they say the border's secure. They blame Republicans. Republicans pass a bill that, that Democrats say is too harsh and they can't get on board with democrats you know insist on citizenship as well as border security like is there is this are we is this pointless well it's it it, it, you know it it needs to be in the discussion and you know people need to push you know on whatever side that they're on uh to look for solutions but you know house oversight and them passing a bill when they only control a third of the of the branches um it's just not going to be enough um, I'm afraid that, you know, we're not going to see a change unless they flip the Senate and change the leadership of the White House. That That's going to make a change. You can imagine every single Republican candidate would never have the border policy that we're seeing played out now. There are people out there talking about it. To your point, are we sort of, you know, circling the drain? Nothing is going to change. I think that's the scenario that we're in because the leverage and the control is dissipated in such a way that status quo wins the day. Ron Vitello, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. And in other news. I'm Gianna Gelosi. Remember last week when we all got that emergency alert on our phones? It was meant to make sure alerts from FEMA and the FCC reached the public on a national level in case of an emergency. But the technology has had some unintended consequences for people who weren't supposed to have a phone. A former member of the Amish community took to TikTok to say how the alert awkwardly outed his Amish pals who were carrying secret phones. The Amish, forbidden from using most technology, Eli Yoder says his friends are now shunned over the incident, and he's the one that helped them get the phones in the first place. Then in New York, a prison official from the Sing Sing Correctional Facility told TMZ they confiscated two phones that sang during the alert, and a source at FCI Coleman Low in Florida told the tabloid the same thing happened there. The alert may have outed the prisoners, but the Bureau of Prisons isn't outing themselves, telling TMZ in a statement, quote, the Federal Bureau of Prisons does not elaborate on specific internal security procedures for safety and security reasons. For the Fox News Rundown, I'm Gianna Gelosi.
Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. David Marcus. What's on your mind? Over the past decade, most of America's largest cities have engaged in a grand experiment to ease policing and soften criminal justice. Now the results are in, and it has been a deadly and abject failure. Take the city of Philadelphia, birthplace of America. Today it is home to hordes of looters storming Lululemons and Apple stores. Then we have the viral video of a motorcycle gang in which a thug stomps in the back of a windshield of a woman's car with kids in the back seat, then pulls a gun on the outraged driver. These rolling gangs in and of themselves are a menace to the city of brotherly love. Every Philadelphian who dines at a sidewalk cafe has seen and heard this. It begins as a low rumbling and in moments, the roar of 40 motorcycle engines thunders at impossible decibel levels that shake the tabletop, the menacing gang preening on their bikes. It is in every sense equivalent to outlaws riding into town guns blazing in a Western film. Even if they commit no crime, their hooting and hollering makes clear to the citizens that they own the town and will do whatever they please. One-year-olds are being shot on the street. Kensington looks like something out of a horror movie with barely moving strung out bodies lining the streets below the elevated train. And then there was the tragic murder of journalist Josh Kruger, himself a strong advocate of leftist policing policies. He was killed in his home, mirroring the death of Ryan Carson, another activist murdered in the streets of Brooklyn. No decent person can find anything but empty sorrow at these killings emotionally, but they do force us to ask, is there any common ground to be found between the left and the right in fixing our city's crime problems and keeping Americans safe? Conservatives have a simple and straightforward solution to the problem. Go back to the policing and criminal justice policies of the 1990s and early 21st century that kept most of our cities safe as houses. End bail reform, refund the police, bring back stop, question, and frisk. The left, however, says that the results of these policies, which are hard to argue with, came at the price of a racist system that leads to minorities being incarcerated at higher levels and police brutality that can even lead to death. That is the standoff. It has been for years. But there could be a third way, a compromise that can at least diminish crime, if not restore the relative tranquility of the recent past. Perhaps a focus on serial repeat offenders who time and again are responsible for murders and carjackings is an area where even today's left can give some ground. That alone would save lives. Fentanyl penalties are also a space where compromise might be found. Last month, a toddler was killed in the Bronx and two others hospitalized just from the residue of the deadly narcotic in the air of their daycare center. Surely those engaged in mass distribution of fentanyl must be treated more harshly than those selling other drugs because its capacity to kill is unique and it is finding its way into other illegal drugs like cocaine and even fake prescriptions like Xanax used by teens. Another possibility is to incentivize good, strong candidates to join our police forces with increased pay and benefits. Not only would this fill the bleeding ranks of law enforcement, it could also deter abuse by choosing only the best of the best to protect and serve. The point is that people are dying, people are scared, businesses are closing, downtowns are destroyed, and rather than stand on our ideological high horses, both sides need to find some common ground solutions. Like any problem in life, the more we ignore crime infesting our cities, the worse it gets and the harder it becomes to address. Now is the time to act, assuming people of good faith can put aside their political animosities and work together for the betterment of our nation. This is David Marcus, author of Charade, COVID lies that crush the nation. 
You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast, bringing you closer to the story than you ever thought possible. Subscribe at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. These are the stories that keep you up at night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.